Man stands with America. This is Freedom's Disciple with Jonathan Dunn on the Blaze Radio Network. Hello, America. Thank you so much for tuning in today. This, of course, is the show where you come for the accent, and the fancy French accent, which might make an appearance today. Who knows? And you stay for the principles. And today we've got a, I've got a really jam-packed show for you today. I need to talk to you about, as we've been doing for the last five, six weeks, talking to you about society, talking to you, trying to solve the problems that we face and trying to lay a groundwork for the future. These are all the questions that needs to be asked and needs to be discussed by your people and people around the world as we deal with coronavirus, as we deal with the Great Reset, as we deal with governments expanding and growing their powers beyond incredible reaches, beyond limits. There is no limit to government power anymore. And what is the solution? If you listen to this show long enough, you know my solutions all revolve around the principles that are found in your founding principles, in the Constitution, in the Bill of Rights, and most importantly, I would argue, in the Declaration of Independence. But one of the things that absolutely is critical is something I want to talk to you today, because it is under attack and no one seems to want to fight it. You know, if you look around at the world's and you look through the history of the world, there generally is a place for faith. Now, I'm not going to try and sell you on my faith, but just faith as a general rule. You know, faith at its best can make people, can make people better, can inspire people to do things that they wouldn't normally do. They inspire people to change, to, you know, to serve people. You know, I'm Christian. I make no, I I don't hide that fact. You know, Christianity is a very simple religion made very complicated by humans. At its core, Christianity is love God, love your neighbor. That's it. It's simple. You know, Christianity as it's as a journey went through this amazing journey where, you know, God created heaven and earth, created Adam and Eve, and had two rules. You know, go procreate, which is basically go have sex and don't eat from the tree. And then it obviously that didn't work out. And you know, if you understand the, the, the role of the Bible, where they then came up with Ten Commandments and the rules got bigger and bigger and Jewish customs. You know, Jewish made all these different rules. And then it went back to Jesus. And then it went back to love God and one love one another. It's very simple. The role of faith has, is absolutely critical in society. But even if you're listening to this and kind of going, John, I'm not a Christian. I'm, I don't believe what you believe. Cool. You have to understand historically why faith has such an important role in society. Because even if it's not my faith, even if it's just some other faith, the understanding that there is a higher power is absolutely critical. When you look at these societies that remove God from society, where it's totally secular, even if you believe, hey, that's, I share those values, I'm a libertarian, I'm more, you know, I'm an atheist, I'm a atheist, whatever it is, that's cool. But you have to understand, when you do that in society, what happens is, when you take a higher power away, you basically make those in power gods, that there is no one out above government, that there is no one above the president, there is no one above a Taoiseach or a prime minister or a queen or a king or whatever you know dictator that you want, whatever term you want to use. There is no one higher. They are at the top of the food chain. And usually if you read enough history, whether it's Germany, whether it's England, whether it's China, whether it's Iran, today, and these, some of these are today. Look at Iran, what's happening today with the Ayatollah and what he's doing to his people. Look what he's, the way they treat its women. What happens is government, when it's top of the food chain, can abuse people. It never leads to more freedom when government is at the top of the food chain and there is no limits. If you look at specifically at America, faith, whether you are a faithful person or not, whether you're a religious person or not, whether you believe and go to church or whether you believe and don't go to church, you cannot get away from the role of religion played in your family. The, literally, the pilgrims left England for many reasons, but among them was religious liberty. They wanted to pursue and serve and 
worship the way they felt that was necessary. They didn't want to have dictates and mandates from the king telling them how they can serve and how, how they can believe and what they can do and what they can't do. If you understand faith, faith has the potential to make the world a better place. Faith makes people want to, you know, if you just look at it from a pure Christian point of view or and a, you know, a similar Judeo point of view, of you just want to get to heaven. You want to live a good life. You want to live a life that's pleasing to you, but to pleasing to God. And then you get into paradise. You get into heaven. And, you, you know, depending on what part of the Bible you believe or different sects have different, you know, beliefs. But, you know, what happens there? You get to reunite with your family. You get to reunite with everyone. It's, it's, it's the reason I say it's depending on what you believe, because it's quite mind boggling. You know, if you think there's, you know, 300 million people in America, you know, if everyone died tomorrow and they all went to heaven, imagine how full that would be. That'd be like, oh, my God. And then if you think of the history of the world, it's it's very mind boggling to think of what heaven would be like if you've ever given that a lot of thought. But at its worst, religion can be spineless, can be weak, can be corrupt, can be pure, downright evil. And we've seen that as well. You've seen some of the actions in the Catholic Church. You've seen some Jesuits do some really bad things. You've seen some Protestants do really bad things. You know, just because we're a priest or an elder or a, a leader in society or a leader in our church doesn't mean, hey, I'm, I'm this leader. I'm this great person. I never sin. No, everyone does. And sadly, because of the religion at its worst, where it gets away from Christianity and gets more into the religion side of it, they protect their own. And then that leads into really bad atmospheres and it leads to cover-ups. And it leads to a lot of pain and suffering that should be unnecessary if you're loyal to him. And what has happened is because society has moved this way and because churches have lost their understanding of what they stand for, you're now looking at a society which is leaderless. Like you look around, ask the average person, you know those man in the street videos that you all do over there? Just go into society and regardless of whether it's Republican or Democrat or you know conservative or liberal or lefty or righty, Ask them, who should we look to in society for leadership? Or who do you look to society for? They'll usually say they're their favorite politician. I guarantee you, if you asked a lot of people on the right right now, Trump. If you ask people on the left, they probably say AOC, the squad. They might say some media figure. They might some say, hey, I go to CNN or MSNBC or Fox News or AONN or whatever it is. Some might say Hollywood. Hollywood is this great, you know, well, we, what we can do is we can right the wrongs in society and tell these great, compelling stories against these issues, and Hollywood can be the leader. Society can be the leader. Hey, me and you. Yeah? All of those have the potential, but they're not a foundational stone to build on it. If you want to look around at the problems in society right now, there was a great saying by a famous philosopher. He's big in, in Christianity. He said, no matter what the problem is in society, blame the church. And he wasn't saying that as, oh, there's a typical person. It's automatically religion's fault. No, he was saying it from the point of view of we should blame the church because if it's happening and the church isn't dealing with it and the church isn't being a leader in solving it, then we're the problem. You know, as what we believe, we should be out there telling people, compelling people, not compelling people, but saying, hey, guess what? We can do this. This is how we solve it, that we should be the leaders. You know, if there's, you know, you take a typical issue that everyone cares about, poverty, homelessness, people living, you know, under you know, under a certain income level, that they can't feed their kids, that they can't pay their bills. What, who's that problem to go to? Everyone will kind of go, well, what we need is a new welfare program. We need a new tax. The rich earn too much. What the real answer is, is not the church should be dealing with this. The church should be going with this. The church should be being the leaders in society. We should be dealing with poverty. We should be dealing with that. Not the government, we should. And this is what's happened, where religion and faith has totally crumbled in 2021 and is constant under constant attack. Because I want to share a story with you. And this is a story from Ireland, but it's relevant because I'm going to make it relevant for what's happening in America today. There's a story in the one of the local papers today. The Holy War. And it's basically a war brewing, and it's not much of a war because they'll give up. They always do. Between a Catholic priest and the police. So what is the background to this story, this holy war? It's great how the media are great at sensationalizing things. This is not a holy war, by the way. Read the title, it's like, ooh, what's going on here? No, it's not. Basically, I think I've shared this with you, but you know, in case I haven't gone into too much detail, so I did write an article for Glenn Beck on this. The COVID restrictions in Ireland. You have a bad, 
not making you try to spiel bad. You have a bad over there, but it is nothing, nothing compared to the COVID restrictions that are in Ireland right now. We are some of the strictest, harshest, draconian restrictions in the world. One of them is we can't go more than three miles from our house. I can't leave my country. Most shops are closed. There's nothing you can do. I can't go to the gym. I can't go to the cinema. I can't go to a restaurant. can't go to a bar. can't go anything. The only two reasons I can go anywhere to leave my house are to walk the dog and exercise or to go to the, the local shop, to the local Walmart and get supplies. That's it. Included in this is the churches are closed. There is no mass. Everything is online. Now, to understand this and why this is such a big deal, is in Ireland, Ireland is still, in certain parts, a Catholic country. And part of Catholicism is, you know, the communion, the bread, the little circle, I'm sure you've all seen it, little circle, piece of bread, it's communion. They actually literally believe that is the body and blood of Jesus Christ. It's a big part of their mass. Well, this little church in, in Dublin said, what we're going to do is we're going to follow all the health advice, we're going to follow all the restrictions, all the government mandates. We're going to have the mass online. But at the end of the Mass, people are going to come up to our church and they're going to get communion. The, the priest who's giving it will wear gloves, we will have a face mask, we will follow all the health and safety regulations. But they're going to give communion. They'll go in one door, get communion, go out another door. So they're leaving from a different door. So like, there's no crisscrossing of people. There's no talking outside. It's just literally you get communion and you go. Big part of Catholicism. That's okay, right? That should be, yeah. That's, yeah, fair play to that church. When I heard this story, I was like, that's a great thing. Why aren't more churches doing this? Every church should be doing this. I, that's at the bare minimum. Police came in. Oh no 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 no! There, none of this communion, my life. No, this is an unauthorized gathering because we, you know, the government haven't said it, and they've basically shut them down. And this priest now is going to go to the police and try and say, "Please let me give communion, please, sir. Please, sir, I'll be a good priest. I'll follow all your rules. Just let me see it, my parishioners' communion." That's the story. What strikes you when you hear that? If you understand faith, if you understand the role of what a Catholic priest should do, a Protestant priest should do, a Baptist, a Mormon, I don't care who you are. Your job is to understand that you serve God. You know, there was a saying back in your revolution. Rebellions to tyrants is obedience to God. That was Ben Franklin. That's Ben Franklin. Re rebellion to tyrants is obedience to God. What has happened to that? Now literally every church is spineless. It's closed. It's weak. It's rudderless. It is making no difference in society. If you're a Christian of any description, this should offend you. But how do you change this? How do you get involved and how you go, hey, this is not a healthy situation. We need to change it. Because you see, we need to address these problems and we need to understand that it's up to us as well. It's so many easy for anyone to look in society and go, you know what you should do in society? This is how you fix it. And you point the finger, if I knew this is what I would do. It's time to stop telling other people what to do. It's time to start living it. It's time to start building up. It's time to start understanding that we have as much of a responsibility in our churches, in our families, in our communities to stand up and make the case of why this is not healthy. But to understand what, how we do this, we need to make the case of some ground rules and understanding of there is a way you do things and there's a way you don't do things. And there's a way you win an argument and there's a way you lose an argument. Because you see, so many people have forgotten or maybe don't even know the story of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. One of the most compelling stories that you will ever hear. But there's one principal story inside his life that is absolutely critical for us to ask ourselves today. You see, there's a story where he's sitting in his jail cell and he's reading his Bible and a priest walks by because he was allowed into the, into, the, into the Nazi jail to give, you know, communion or absolution or confession or just meet with people. And all of a sudden, you know, Bonhoeffer's there in his garb and, you know, you know the, the, the collar reading his Bible. And the priest walks by, his door is open, the priest walks by and he's like, whoa, whoa, did I see a priest lying in the bed? And he takes a few steps back and he goes... Father, he goes, yes. And he, he talk, goes in and may I come in and talk to you? He goes, yes. And he says, I, I got to ask, 
Father, you know, you're clearly a man of faith. You know, you're reading here, you're reading your Bible, you've got the collar. What did you do to, you know, be in there? What, who did you annoy? What crime did you commit? Bonhoeffer simply says to him, you're asking the wrong question. The question isn't what I have done to be in here. The question is, what have you done to stay outside? You see, the problem with society right now is we all want to pass the book. We have no leadership. Our churches are many times spineless, weakless, and if I want to make this purely about America, care more about tax-exempt status and their 5013 status than you people who are in your congregation, who are there week in and week out. They care more about that tax-exempt status than you. Because I guarantee you, if you go to the majority of churches and you say, you can't say this, you can't do this, or we take away your tax-exempt status, they will stop. Why? Because they have been so far removed from God and from the Bible and from what they are supposed to stand for. And in America's case, from what your founders stood for, the history of America. It's time to make the case. So how do you fight this? The solution is you make the case where you don't care what the government says. I don't care what the government mandates are. I don't work for you. You're not my boss. I don't care whether you're a Taoiseach, whether you're a prime minister. Hell, you can have any name in the world. You can just call yourself the dictator in chief for all I care. Guess what? I'm still doing my job because I don't work for you. I work for God. He is my boss. And as much judgment as you think you can condemn me to, as much pain and suffering you can give me in my life, guess what? It doesn't pale in comparison to the pain and suffering I will have in eternity if I don't serve my God, if I don't do what I know is morally right. What's happening in the world is, and this happened in America as well, but to a lesser extent, is all these churches followed all the rules and they shut down. And guess what? Nothing happens. How many arrests were there? This is where I get to, how do you win this? You fight the right way. Civil disobedience. Go to church. Open the churches. Follow certain rules if you need social distancing, if you've got older people, but you're there to serve. If one person comes or a hundred people come to come to your church, you're open for business. That you do not turn someone away from God's house. That you give them communion. But this is where you make the argument. It's time to stop playing by government's rules, by man's law. Let them arrest you. How many people are willing to go, you know what? I'm, I'm going to go to jail. I'm not going to criticize the laws that they're stupid, which they are. I'm not going to be, hey, in your face, which, you know, is easy to do, which I'm kind of like that because I'm in that mood right now. But you make the case, okay, you got to arrest me. You know what? If ever there was a reason to go to jail, I will gladly go to jail because I was giving communion to my prisoners. You make the case. Let them arrest you. Can you imagine the stories? The story which happened in Canada, where he was jailed for preaching. Good. Not good that he was arrested, but good that someone had the balls to stand up and understand what your job is. And let people be inspired by it. Let people see that all we're trying to do is we're not trying to be aggressive. We're not trying to be in your face. We're not trying to get people sick. No, we're not trying to murder people. We're doing our job. We're doing our job where this is our role. I don't work for you. I work for him. And I will continue to spread this message. I will continue to serve him. Because no matter what you mandate, I don't care. It doesn't matter. I follow a different set of rules. But you do it not in aggressive terms. You don't get in people's faces. You make the case. Because here's the thing. This is the Martin Luther King story. Again, it all boils down to some key principles that work time and time again. When everyone in, in the South and certain places were like, ah, oh, them black people, they want your jobs. Oh, those black people, they want to control you. They don't want equality, they want this. They want to get white. And guess what? Anytime anyone challenged and kind of go, I don't think the black people are like that. They quote Malcolm X going, well, here's Malcolm X. You, you think you can agree with that person? What was the big change? We're all to change in society. Martin Luther King walking peacefully, arm in arm, brother to brother, shoulder to shoulder, going, hey, we just want the same rights you have. That's all we want. We want to be free. We want the same principles. How could you argue with that? When then when you saw the horrific, if you read enough black history and Southern history, and you saw blacks been tortured by the police, been rounded up by the KKK. No one wanted that. No innocent person was going, ha ha. 
God, he got it. No, people started to change their hearts and minds kind of go, you know what? That's wrong. That's what we need. We need to make the case. We need to understand the message of Bonhoeffer. It is not what you did to go to jail. It's what are you doing right now to stay out of jail? What do you care more about? What do you care more about? This is what we need to do in society, especially as a Christian society, especially as America, which is built on the pilgrims, which is built on the bows of Moses and Jesus. Whether you believe or not, that is what you're built on. That is the message of freedom. That is the message that is in the Bible. Who are willing to make that stand? Now, the great thing is, in America, you're changing. You're opening up. There are states going, yeah, let's open up. We've done this long enough. Brilliant. Because here's the thing. We need to start making the case to people, not in hostile terms. And I'm, I know I'm not the one to, to make the case right now because I'm pissed off. Because I'm seeing people bend and buckle all day long. But what we need to do is go, you know what? If you're vulnerable, you're in society and you're elderly and you're worried, great. Just don't go out. You stay safe. I highly encourage you. Wear a mask. Whatever restrictions you want to follow, go for it. But if you're young and healthy, go for it as well. You have a right to live your life. And even if I think you're stupid or I disagree with you, you have that fundamental will because that is also a law from God. It's called free choice. That is what he gave us. I don't have a right to compel you how to act. But this is where I bring it right back to everyone of you. What we need to do is build a society where we have the priest back. It's easy for me, you know, to listen to what I just said. Go, I agree with everything John says. The priest should do that. The priest should be at mass. The priest should be given communion. The priest should be. Guess what? what? The priest needs to understand. The pastor needs to understand. We have their back. We have their back. That if he opens up, we'll be there. And that we'll be responsible. That we'll act in a responsible way. That we'll be calm. And if the police come, that we don't go, oh, yeah, and get in their face. No. I'm here to worship. I don't worship you. I don't worship my government. I worship my God. And I have a right to do so. And you will not stop me. And if they insist on arresting me, then make their peaceful arrest. Don't get in their face. Don't go, hey, and start death bombing and going cursing and throwing things at people and throwing fireworks at people. Because guess what? Anyone who's sympathetic to your cause will look at that and go, yeah, I don't, I'm that person F bombing the police. I'm not cool with that. Even if the policeman deserves it, you know, I'm not joining that side. Oh, just not my thing. Whereas if you're peaceful and you're like, okay, arrest me for going to mass. Arrest me for getting communion. They can't arrest everyone. Imagine if we had that courage to stand up. You see, all the problems in society, and God knows we face a lot of them. But the solution is me and you. We need to have the courage. We need to have the, the intestinal fortitude to stand up and go, no. We will not comply. We will resist. But we will resist, not with violence, not with insults, but with peaceful terms, peaceful, humble terms. That's why Martin Luther King won. That is the difference. And that is what we need to start doing on COVID, on the Great Reset, on socialism, on every issue. Because deep down, me and you, ever who you're watching, we're not meant to be changed. We're not meant to be coerced. We're not meant to be compelled to act a certain way. We are free beings and governments need to start unleashing people and stop telling people what to do and letting them live their own lives. we get to calm down because i apologize i got heated that was a big issue that we need to talk about we're going to talk about more going forward i'm now going to the nice calm john the gandhi john is going to come out i want to talk to you uh, with a brilliant guest and it's a book that i highly encourage you to read it's been out years and it's it's a book that i think is is incredible it's so apt for today but also has a special meaning for me because i didn't buy this book full disclosure i was actually given it as a gift by doc thompson who was a late personal friend of mine. And we were talking in the Blaze Studios one day and we, we, you don't need to know the conversation. It was a personal conversation as I used to have with him. And he was like, you know what? You need this book. And I went, okay. And sometimes people always give you books you need to read this book. This book will change your life. This is a, a must-read book. And I read it and I was like, wow. 
and I've probably read it, full disclosure, about 20 times. My guest, of course, is, is a book called The Go-Giver. Highly recommend it if you haven't read it. My guest is Bob Berg. Bob, thanks so much for joining us. Hey, my pleasure, Jonathan. And, and that, you know, I'm, I'm honored to know that you received the book from, from Doc. He was just such a, a great guy. He was. He was. In my industry, there's not many good people that I, I vouch for and go that are really genuine because, you know, in front of the mic, they're great. And then behind the scenes, you meet them and they're a bit different. But Doc was just totally one of the coolest gentlemen going and always gave you time. And he was very good to me. So I always miss him. So but this book is so critical. And I, I just want to talk to you about some of the stories in it. There's, it's sure. talking about five rules for life, which um, I, you know, are really good. But I actually want to take a bit of a different tactic, if you don't mind. I want to talk to you about some scenarios that are in the book, because for me, the five rules are absolutely great. And they're really key. But the stories inside the stories are absolutely critical. And I, I think there's so many things that we can learn today. And the first one is in right in the first chapter. Um, we have such a sense of entitlement in our world today, where it's a situation where it's a, co- it's a call with Carl. And he's like, Carl, you can't do this to me, man. Come on, I bailed you out on this account. You owe me. And it's this sense of, no, you owe me. Come on. But this is how business works. I scratch your back. You scratch mine. And it's this sense of entitlement. And we've really taken that up to a whole new level in 2021 where everyone seems to be entitled to everything. And I'd love to, how, what would you think about that? Or what, what, you know, how do we solve this? Or how do we kind of bring it back down to, you know, more of a go-giver, you know, perspective? Well, you know, that was really Joe, the, who was the protege in the story. That was really his, his, his attitude. He was very focused on himself. And it was all about what people owed him. Yeah. And, you know, I, what I like to say is uh, to be really successful in life, be internally motivated and outwardly focused. So what we really look to do is, is ask ourselves, how can I provide value to this other human being? How can I add value to the world around me? How can I add value, bring value, give value uh, to the marketplace? Uh, And when we do that, especially to the degree that we operate in a free market-based economy, and when I say free market, I simply mean no one is forced to do business with anyone else. Mm -hmm. And to the degree we live in a free market, the only way you can prosper is by doing well for others, by providing value to someone in such a way that they see that value uh, as being sufficient to want to trade with you. So in business, it would be you have a product or service and the the entire experience that you provide uh, with that makes it so uh, desirable to somebody else that they will willingly, again, free market, willingly exchange their money with you. Uh, Harry Brown, one of my old mentors and a great uh, libertarian uh, writer and, and politician. And so I used to say that in a free market-based economy, there are always two profits. The buyer and the seller both profit because each comes away better off afterwards than they were beforehand. This is why we say that money is simply an echo of value, right? It's mm-hmm. the under to values lightning. Uh, it means the focus needs to be on bringing value to others. When you do that, the money will be the result. Well, when we're entitled or self-entitled, we feel that other people, we feel the world owes us despite our not providing value to the world, okay? Now, we might think, okay, well, if, if someone is giving me something when I didn't provide value, I, I can appreciate that, but I'm certainly not entitled to that. And so I, I, I think that the entitlement mindset says that that's not being taught. <laughs> you know, yeah. the feeling that we need to do our best to bring value to the world around us in order to receive, and that if if uh, and you know hey at times everybody needs help and and if someone is there and they they choose to help us because it's congruent with their values to do so great and we should appreciate that and know that that's something special not something that we have the right to demand or to uh, utilize the guns of government let's say in order yeah. to get our way yeah, no, the mindset is so is so paradoxical to me where everyone thinks they're entitled to, you know, even down to how they're treated and stuff is you have to do this to me. And it's and it's like that isn't life. That is not anything based in, in the history of life. 
And even just the mindset of, you know, the, one of the great stories, inside, again, inside the story was, you know, the story of um, Joe Mean Rachel and the story of her coffee and how he, you know, he's like, this is the Rachel's famous coffee. And like, even the mindset where he's like, you know, compared where he's meeting Pindar and like, he's like, you said, I quote, um, uh, make a killing. And she, I was like, you, she's going to share some great coffee. coffee. Yeah. And, and I, <laughs> that's what we don't do anymore. It's all about me, 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 in sense of entitlement, but also then wrapped into, I'm just going to make as much money because we've defined as a society of what our bank balance says is how much I'm worth and nothing else. And I think, how do we get to that point? How do, my, my questions are for you going to be, how do we get back to society to where it was in the good old days? We're going to be two old guys saying this now, the good old days, where we're not so entitled, but we're not looking through business and also in our life um, about not making killing, but sharing some great gifts with people. Well, I mean, my feeling is this, that, that uh, you know, that liberty is by definition, the right to live one's life, however, and in whatever way one sees fit in the pursuit of their happiness, providing they don't infringe upon the rights of anyone else to do the same. So if someone, let's say someone is, let's say someone's very, very motivated by money. Okay. Mm -hmm. By the way, far less people, I think, than we think are actually motivated by money. Now we might be motivated by what we think the money is going to do for us and yeah. help us to perceive happiness or live congruently in a, a way that we want to. The money tends to be, is the means to an end. That's the way to get there. But let's just take it that as though they're money oriented. If they are, that's fine. But for them to make the money that they want to make, they have got to first focus on providing value to the marketplace. Yeah. Because, and I often say this when I speak at sales conferences, nobody's going to buy from you because you have a quota to meet, yeah. right? Nobody's going to buy from you because you need the money or because you have a mortgage payment or not, or just because you're a nice person. They're going to buy from you because they believe they'll be better off by doing so than by not doing so. So if someone's focus is money, it, it tends to be more difficult to make money. <laughs> right? Yeah. Because when your focus is genuinely on serving, sharing the coffee, so to speak, when your focus is on genuinely serving others and bringing value to them, they're much more likely to see the benefits of doing business with you. And then again, the money is going to follow. But I think as human beings, you know, we are based, we're built, we're created to, to want to make a difference to want to be part of something even bigger than ourselves. Uh, we're, we're, we, we want to feel like we're making a difference in other people's lives. And in the business sense, uh, entrepreneurs, business people, salespeople, what have you, tend to express that need through their products and services, yeah. right? Where the money is the result. So I think it's really kind of, um, it, it's, it's honoring people's you know, right to, to, to pursue happiness, how they see fit again, providing they don't infringe upon anyone else's rights. And then when we do that, I think it, it naturally tends to go back to what people really do genuinely care about. I think that that's for me as an outsider, you know, I think, you know, not getting into the politics of, of things, but for me, the idea of America is what I'm passionate about. That's why I speak about every week, the Constitution, the Bill of Rights, the Declaration of Independence. And for me, the American dream is I want to move there. I've been trying for 17 years to get there, to live as a free person, to, to follow what I want to do and not be infringed upon by my government. That's to me is the American dream. But what I've seen over the last 10, 20 years kind of is that's me sharing the coffee. That's that's America's secret sauce. But what I've seen is, and this goes back to FDR, where he re revolutionized the new the, the American dream, not from living free and you know pursuing your happiness, but everyone has to have a car and, and a garage and a house and a garage to put the car in. And it's all possession-based. It's all about making a killing. And I, uh, one of the things I'm trying to do, and I'm asking you because I'd love your advice on how I should do it, is... How do I how do I sort of share that vision with America again and kind of get them go? Yes, the, the possessions is great. Look, the technology. I'm talking to you on an iPad Pro. You know, I'm clearly love the possessions. I'm not saying they're bad and we should go back to the sure, stone age. No. But they just shouldn't be the, the end all be all, right? And yes. they should all be tools to help yes. us um, live our values, which is yes. communication, which is to uh, to make the lives of, of both ourselves and others better, to, in order to to bring advancement to the world around us. Absolutely. 
Uh, and, you know, I mean, here in the States, unfortunately, government continues to grow and grow and be more intrusive. And it typically doesn't matter who the president is and, or what party they're from. It grows no. and it grows and it grows, um, you know, to, and so, you know, it, it just does. So I, I constantly try to spread the message of why uh, a, a smaller government uh, it, it not only respects people more, <laughs> but is actually best for, for everyone. Well, the only ones it's not best for are the politician, the, the um, career politicians and the lobbyists. Yeah. And, and those businesses and special interests who want to provide, you know, uh, uh, amass special favors and legislation for themselves. Those people, it's not, small government's not good for. But that's okay. It's good for the masses to have small yeah. government because it creates opportunity. Uh, and, and again, the, the, when you don't have people fighting for each other's loot, okay, to take from one another when it's not their money to take, okay, when you don't have that, you, people respect each other more. You know, and, and so I, I think it's just, it, it's very natural, but that's hard to explain to a lot of people because intuitively uh, for people, it just seems like government is a, you know, generous uh, kind of friend of the little people. It's not. No, <laughs> it's absolutely None of the not. policies are. No. Uh, <laughs> it, it, hurt, well, it tends to hurt the people who, who need uh, it, uh, who need the most. And so, yeah. but, but again, it's, it's counterintuitive. And that's why I think it has to be explained in a way that is, uh, you know, tactful and diplomatic and, 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 you know, and, and that way. Absolutely. And I think one of the things that one of the big lessons that is in your book is something I just spoke about in a while, where I was talking about the church and it's not government's job to solve the problem. It's our job and it's where it's our failings. But one of the things in the, the key lessons in your book is you give because you love to. It's not, and it's a way of life, not because you're, you talk about where, you know, the two friends and it's like, Hey, I did it for you. So you did it for me. It's like, that's not a friendship code. That's right. a creditor's code. Right. It's and I think we, yeah. we, yeah, we were literally, Hey, well, I did this for you. So, you know, you have to do this for me. And, you know, everyone, and there's another concept and I'd like to mix in with that is where you kind of go, if everyone's keeping score, it's like, you know, everyone, everyone, it's a zero sum game because it's not, right. a, it's exactly. not about getting any, everyone ahead. And it's 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 against that. So, like, how do we get back to that type of encouragement, whether it's from a Christianity point of view or, you know, government point of view or whatever way you want to take the question is. But how do we get back to the point of view of it's giving isn't I'm not giving you something. You didn't come on this interview because you're giving me something. it's because we want to have a conversation and to try and share that message with people. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I think it's basically a matter of education it, it, and, and that education is not going to come through a public or government school system. Um, it, it's going to come from parent to child and it's going to come from people in the community to to uh, to their, you know, to to the children there. It's going to come from the, the churches and the synagogues and the mosques and it's going to come teaching there and it's going to come from different you know different different places um but i think it is a matter of education and we need to be able to share with people uh you know why certain things are more benevolent helpful and productive for both the individual and for society i mean it but but the sharing of this it 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 has to come in order to be effective and sustainable. It really needs to come from a, a place of um, a place of not talking down to people or you know looking at people who don't agree as being monsters or less than human uh, because people aren't going to accept your message if you do that. And I'm not even talking about the people who disagree with you. I'm talking about the people who are on the fence. Yeah. So that's why when we can express ourselves in a way that that shows respect to even to others who may not share our, our exact points of view. OK. Yeah. And, and we can explain our points to people uh, and educate them in that way. They're much more likely to listen and absorb the message. Absolutely. And it's it's so key to to make the case for why America is an exceptional nation. Like it's not it just didn't happen again, going back to the, you know, making a killing versus great coffees. It America, I was trying to explain, it didn't just happen overnight. It wasn't like it just it just wasn't some government program. It wasn't just magic. 
It happened because you followed a set of principles that the rest of the world had never, ever seen before. And this idea of letting man be free, letting them pursue their own happiness and keeping the fruits of their own labor. And I think, you know, your book kind of, it, it brings a moral state case to that. It's kind of like everyone wants to, you know, everyone wants to kind of believe in that's just the free market run royal. But if you understand where the free market kind of came from, Adam Smith and wealth of nations and the invisible hand, you're kind of you're not just talking about that. The one of the things I love about your book is it's making them very simple. You're making case for the free market. You're making case for Christianity in a way as well, that type of principle way of life. But you're not doing it in a, hey, I'm going to thump the Bible. I'm going to tell you why America is great. I'm just going to give you little stories that are going to get people to think. And I think that's absolutely critical. But I would love your, there's a few things I would love to talk to you about in the, the stuff that I think people will read in it and kind of go, that sounds great in writing. But in real life, it, I, I have some questions about it. And the first one is this idea and this mindset. And I, I first of all, I struggle with this a bit. Um, people will take advantage of you. It's dog eat dog. I can go out and live the best life I can and help everyone and always think about other people. But I'm only going to ever get taken advantage of. How do we change that mindset or how do we get past that? So first, it's very important to understand that that there is nothing congruent between being a go-giver and being anybody's doormat, you know, being a martyr or or being self-sacrificial in any way. Absolutely not. Uh, being a go-giver is simply understanding that when you shift your mindset off of yourself, bringing on to adding and putting it on to others, adding value, bringing value to others, that, um, that again, not only is it a more pleasant way to live life and conduct business, that it's the most financially profitable way as well. That, that, is, the, that is the basic premise of the go-giver, okay? So there's nothing about that that says you should be taken advantage of. Now, I think the question is, so if you're a go-giver, that probably means you're a nice person, don't nice people lose? Don't nice people finish last? Well, they do if they do things that create the environment for them to finish last. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's not enough just to be nice. I know plenty of people who are simply nice people who are also simply broke people. Yeah. Okay, so being successful is a matter of doing the correct things in the success process that allows a person to be successful and, and finish first, if you will. So can you be taken advantage of? Well, I guess you can if, if you allow yourself to be. Um, but I would say that if you find yourself being taken advantage of constantly, and I'm not talking about once or twice in your life. I mean, it's going to happen to everybody at, at some time. Yeah. But I'm talking about a pattern of such, okay? It's not because you're a nice guy or a nice gal. It's not because you're a go-giver. It's because you're doing things in a certain way that allows you to be taken advantage of by others. Okay? Absolutely. So, yeah, so again, there's there's just no... Um, uh, there's no congruency between the go-giver and, and being taken advantage of. That's a, that's a great point. And just following on from that, one of the things I, I found very interesting when I was reading your book again was um, where Nicole is talking about the belief system. And um, this, there's certain things that really hit home for me and I try and, and change and I'm, I'm still trying to find my message and what I need to do in life is, and that's why I keep coming back and reading your book, trying to go, okay, how can I change it? What do I need to do? But one of the simple things was you got to change your narrative. And I think that's something, you know, you can, you know, I think America needs to change its narratives and, um, you know, about when it comes to politics and how hostile it is. I think, you know, economically, you need to change your narrative. But even deep down, how, you know, if you have the system of you, you got taken advantage of, just like we were just speaking about, you're getting taken advantage of constantly. You, you have the power to write a different story. You know, you know, a lot of people love writing a drama or writing a horror story. You know, try write a comedy for a change. You know, or so, you have that power. But it's to say it. I always, I, and I'm, I'm the biggest critic of myself. I'm doing this. I, it's easy to say, but how to do it is is so hard to do. Uh, and I'd love to. What would you say about that? Well, I mean, I, I think it's first a matter of being conscious of, of where you are. Because if somebody is, let's say, they uh, Nicole in the story, who had always been brought up that you either are a good person or you're a wealthy person. Right. It yeah. was uh, it was the what we call the treacherous dichotomy or the false dilemma. 
the unnecessary use of the word or, right? Uh, good or wealthy. No, it's it's both. Okay, yeah. but until you, but until you realize that there's even a flaw in your thinking and the basic premises of your thinking, you're never going to do anything in order yeah. to, and that's and that's where each of us can reach out and be able to educate people. But that's also why the relationship's so important because unless someone feels good about us, unless they they know us, they like us, and they trust us, they're going to be much less likely to listen to our you know advice or even allowing us to plant that seed. Uh, to, to help them go in a different direction. But once once she realized that what she was doing wasn't really working for her, she was open to a better way of doing things. And yeah. I think that's where it begins. We've got to be open to a better way of doing, a more productive way of, of doing things. One that's congruent with our value system and one that, that, that brings value to everyone in our lives, including us. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah, and actually, there's a great point in the book where it's um, there are three types of. Sorry, I'm looking for the note. Uh, there's three. You know, you, some people focus on surviving, some people focus on saving, some people focus on serving, and you make this great point. And I, I would encourage everyone to you know think of someone that you really admire in business. That you know, whether it's Elon Musk or whether it's Jeff Bezos, you know, any of these people who've changed the world for whether you like them or not. But their passion is clearly not, hey, I'm going to do this and I'm going to make a load of money. It's I'm doing this because I believe I can change the world. You know, look at um, uh, what Steve Jobs and Apple, sure. you know, he wasn't in it per se for the money. You know, he was in it to, to change, to revolutionize the world. And it's that's all about, yeah. And that, I think that's such a key message. And I think if you look at people that you admire, they all tend to have, you know, that similar ethos on it. And I think it's something that, you know, we can follow them. And it's not a case of, well, I could never be that person. Well, you could be if you try. I'm not saying you will, but that idea of have the pursuit of you could be sure. and that have that potential. Um, the one of the stories that really got me, because I think this is the most, uh, for me, this is the most important role in the book. And I think it's the one that everyone struggles with. Uh, and I actually started crying when I started reading this. It's the story of Diane. She's this sales speaker and skimming this seminar. And she's like, I, I got three birthday presents for my birthday last year. I got a, I got a gift voucher. Uh, I got a, a, a all, uh, expense paid of massage and child therapy for my kids or child babysitting and my husband left and then she talks talking about that she was there to sell she wasn't there to sell herself or to sell a product she was there to sell you on you and i think where we have a problem in society and again i'm the biggest person on this is to believe in yourself to try and educate yourself and try and say no actually you know what i can change the world i can make it better place i can serve other people how do we, where do we find that belief or where, where, if you were helping, giving some advice to someone who's really struggling that, what would you, what would you say to them? Well, it's very human to feel that way. I mean, you know, self-doubt is fairly natural, you know, and, and uh, so, and it can be very easy if we don't embrace the value that we truly have. Uh, we're going to undersell ourselves. And I'm not talking about just financially. I'm talking about in terms of, of life. If we don't value ourselves, it's very hard for other people to value us. And so uh, I think it begins again. It, it all comes back to, um, to um, awareness that there's an issue there, right? Yeah. Because remember uh, that our, we all grow up with a basic belief system. Um, this, our, our belief system and a belief is a subjective truth. It's not necessarily the truth. Yeah. It, it's our truth. It's how we see and understand our world, okay? So our belief system is formed at a very young age. Uh, it's a matter of upbringing, environment, schooling, then news media, then television shows, and then movies. And But by the time we're a little more than toddlers, our basic belief system is is pretty much etched in stone, right? Yeah. And, uh, and, and so most people grow up and live their entire lives controlled by what I call an unconscious operating system where they think they're operating out of conscious choice and free will, but they're really not. They're operating within a matrix, if you will, that has been established for them. Uh, and, uh, you know, taking that red pill is a key step <laughs> to, to, to getting out. And that's the awareness, right? That, that you're living in a, in, in a matrix, uh, uh, you know, trapped in your own set of, of, of beliefs. And so what are, and uh, one of the best books I 
ever, ever read on this topic was written, it was published in 1960 by Dr. Maxwell Maltz called Psycho-Cybernetics, who really did a wonderful job. And it, it, it sounds like a fancy title, but it's a, it was a very uh, actually easy read. Uh, but he talked about how the way we see the world, which again is our belief system, our subjective truths, the way we see the world is how we're going to operate in that world. Yeah. And we can never operate at a higher level, right, than what we see our world as, as being. So, uh, again, that first step um, to recognizing and embracing your own value is to understand that you're probably being held back by limited beliefs that you're not even aware of. So that's why it's important to, to read books, to watch videos, to have a coach, if you will, or to have a counselor or somebody who you can bounce ideas off of who can maybe look at you in a way that, you know, because remember as human beings, we're emotionally involved with ourselves yeah. and often we cannot see the great value that we bring to the table. Right. Yeah. But other can. so if it's someone who you respect, who you trust, who cares about you, but is not so emotionally involved with you that they can't see yeah. past that as well. Well, now you're in a position where you can grow. And also it takes so much work because I find when I'm trying to get positive work. about myself and, you know, it's, 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 you're working, you start believing, you get it. And then you kind of get lazy. And then all of a sudden that default that you thought you've beaten is like, no, no, you really suck. No, it's and a work it's, in progress. Sure. And, and it, you can take, you know, you can be like 10 steps ahead and just takes one bad day to go right back to square one. And that's the thing. People then need to get back up. Um, but the one thing, there's a couple of final principles I want to talk to you about. And the, the, I can't stress how, how great I love this book for one reason is because it makes stories like it's there's so many stories inside the story. But one of the things that really struck me, I read reread the book this week for to talk to you about it and was the story of Joe and Susan. And they're, they're a couple and they both had a really bad day. And, you know, there was issues in work and they both come home and they have, which I found, I'm not married. So I found this rule very funny was they had this unwritten rule of you have 30 minutes of moaning each and then that's it. But she comes home and she's a really bad day. And then all of a sudden she's like, I've just realized I've moaned. I think it was like for 40 minutes or whatever. And he's like, no, you need to keep going. And then, you know, she wait, long, I won't ruin it for the people who want to read the book, but um, basically, long story short, she leaves on this lovely note that, you know, I felt listened to and I felt heard. Thank you. I love you. And these were words he hadn't heard in a while. And I think she wrote this to my sweetheart and he hadn't heard her call that in a while as well. And that just those meanings. And if ever there was a story for today with all the political bickering of you don't have to agree. We don't have to. Yeah, I can. I can sit here and listen to you. Kind of go. You're completely wrong. You're you're so far wrong. It's crazy. You're, you're just. You're you're not even close to the spot. But I'll listen to you and I'll hear you, and without jumping in or insulting you or going, oh, you're one of these lefties or you're a Trump supporter or you're this. How can we? Why is that story so simple but so effective today? And how can we share it with people more? Well, you know, it, it's interesting with politics. One of the uh, issues. I think, uh, at least here in the States, is that, you know, for, for as long as we've had a, a two-party system, and we generally always have, um, even before they were Democrats and Republicans, uh, the two sides have always gone at each other, all right? Yeah. Uh, they've never been particularly nice to each other, whenever. But, but what it was, was it was always kind of, I'm right, you're wrong. Now, that's, that's never a, a great place to start from, but it was doable. Because if you believe that you're right and the other person's wrong, you'll at least engage with them. You'll try to connect with them because you want to persuade them, okay? Yeah. Now, and I'd say this is over the last really, I'd say almost 15, 20 years, but it, it seems to get worse every year. And that is, it's no longer I'm right, you're wrong. It's I'm right, you're evil. And from there, communication can never happen because who is going to try and deal with evil? You know, evil is incorrigible. You, you can't fix evil, okay? And both sides are seeing the other side as being evil. So not only are they not engaging with the other side and discovering what the other side really thinks, but they're so into their own echo chambers, listening only and watching and reading only those people who they already agree with, who are usually giving false, uh, you know, uh, looks at what the other side really is, that it gets worse and worse and worse. So I think we've got to get to a point where um, 
where we need to be willing to see the other side as having basically good intent. Now, are there evil people in the world? Of course there are. And there are on both sides of the aisle, okay? But those are far and few between, really. Most people would like to see good happen, okay? Yeah. Um, so I think the first thing we need to do is, is be willing to see the other side, if you will, as having basically good intent, even if they're wrong, naive, what have you, yes. and go from there. And then I, you know, I think from that point, now you can, and, and by the way, and I, and I think this is a really important uh, point, Jonathan, that communicating um, with others tactfully and kindly and respectfully should never be confused with compromise. Yeah. We can always speak tactfully, diplomatically, kindly, respectfully to others without compromising our values. Absolutely. I, I totally agree with that. And I always say, use the example as, as a Christian. Like for me, if you believe what I believe as a Christian in Jesus Christ, the person who's the most wrong is the atheist, usually. Obviously, if there's a satanic person or some. But what I always try and do is I kind of go, right, I believe I'm going to heaven. All right, that you potentially, if you do this life a certain way, you get to go to heaven. You know, in some cases, depending on what way you read the Bible, it's like, if you don't believe in Jesus, you're not going. Now, that's for God to decide, not me. But I always try and go, well, they're the most wrong. How would I treat them? And if I believe Jesus is great, surely I should want them to know that message of how great he is and try and talk to them about it. So how do you do that? Do I go around going, you believe, don't believe in Jesus, you're stupid, you're a big dummy, you're a moron? Or do I go, hey, there's this cool guy, Jesus, here's a book, you might want to read it. And what we don't even do that in politics. And I think that's one of the things that that's the way I try and treat people. Kind of go, okay, you know, we might agree to disagree, or we might, you might think I'm the biggest idiot in the world, or vice versa, but let's have that communication. We don't ever want to seem to do that anymore. Our, we're waiting for you in our heads, which I see on social media. And social media is horrible, but I see people waiting in their heads for you just to say one key word. I want you to hear, oh, there, you said that word. You're obviously one of those. And yeah. I'm hearing what I want to hear, not what you're actually saying. Well, that's a, that, that people hear, they read, they see that, you know, confirmation bias uh, is, is, is so prevalent. Uh, I mean, it always has been. It's a part of human nature. But confirmation bias, where we tend to, um, when we hear something that is already congruent with our already held beliefs, we accept it as truth. But when, yeah. when it's it's something that's not congruent, we just ignore it, right? Yeah. And, and and so yeah, and we see that in politics just just all the time. It, yeah, absolutely. And the last question I have for you, the one, the one of the great stories at the end is where this whole book is based around a guy who is literally a week away from the end of the quarter, and he's way behind on a sales target. That's and he's literally I need to meet someone to help me get across the 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 target. And he goes through all these meetings and he meets with loads of different people to get loads of different life lessons. But the last chapter in the book, you see him as a top of, you know, Rachel's, I'll give a spoiler alert, Rachel's famous coffee. And you see him doing really, really well. And one of the things that I think is so missing today in this instant gratification world where I want it now, I want it, I want it, I want it, I want it, is he could have been so focused on, I just need to hit this third quarter target and nothing else. But he went on these lessons and the bigger picture was he got a really great job from it. It's the, it was the old banking rule. Like, you know, I don't want a customer for a quarter. I want a customer for life. That's the way banks used to do business, Goldman Sachs, back in the 20s and the 30s. They they, they would refuse your business if you said, I only want to deal with you for three months. They wanted you to be for life. And I think today we're like, I want everything now. It's right. I want I want I want I want I want to, I want a pay rise now. I want to be a job now. I walked into a job yesterday and I want to be the CEO. <laughs> uh, don't ever understand that it's a journey, but also in key in that journey is the principles that you learn along the way and not changing. You don't, you know, you may have bad situations, you may lose your job or bad things might happen, but at a core, that's who you are. And I think that's absolutely critical. And I'd love to hear what you think about that. I couldn't be more in agreement with you. <laughs> yeah, there's yeah. Not, a, not a lot I can say about that. I, I agree. Yeah. You know. <laughs> yeah, and I think it's such an important thing to do. And the last thing, just tying it into that, was just to get to, to really hit the nail home, is that which I never heard before I read this book was, and it's so key: the, your financial balance sheet versus your life balance sheet. 
And I think we need to get to a point, and I don't know how we do this, where life's balance, our, our financial balance sheet is obviously important. You know, can we put food on the table? Can we pay our mortgage? I never underestimate how important that is. But we also have a life balance sheet that's absolutely critical. And I think we need to get talking about that again and kind of go how we interact with people and, and how we treat people and charity and, and philanthropy and making the world a better place. I think if you focus on the, uh, the life balance sheet, the financial balance sheet tends to take good care of itself. Um, again, that doesn't mean you don't put business principles into place. And, but again, the business principles are find a way to provide value to the marketplace. <laughs> you know? um, and so if in everything you're doing, whether we're talking about success in terms, again, of financial, physical, spiritual, mental, emotional, social, relational, what have you, if you're doing the right things in the right way, okay, always acting congruently with your value system, okay, your own personal constitution, um, then uh, the chances are good that you're going to have success. Absolutely. Listen, thank you so much for joining us. Like, where can people find your work or where are you on social media? Yeah, well, best place to go is Berg, B-U-R-G dot com. And from there, pretty much everything's there, including how to find me on social media. Absolutely. And your book is on Amazon. It's only, it's, it's a great book. It's, and it's really simple. It's like, I think it's 127 pages or something, something like, like that. that. And it's, there's so many stories. When I was doing the prep for this, I had like six pages of notes. It's full of little stories that make you think. And at America, we finish up this show the way we always do by saluting you, the American people. Never forget, I always say this, you're just the sentiments at Stokeville. America is great because Americans are good. That's what you just heard from Bob Berg. That's what we just spoke about. Until next Saturday at 12 noon Eastern, have a beautiful and blessed week. Freedom versus freebies. This is Freedom's Disciple with Jonathan Dunn on the Blaze Radio Network.